We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew 28. We're just going to start there, and then we're going to um, work our way through the whole New Testament. Matthew 28, and if you want to get ahead of the game, you can feel free to... um, to put a finger in Romans 20 or Revelation 21, sorry. So we'll be in Matthew 28 and then we'll we'll speed on through and we'll we'll hover over Revelation 21 for a minute. Matthew 28 verse 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven And on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, have one more time we ask that as we come before your word, that you would fill our minds with your scriptures. Father, pray that you would um, encourage us and comfort us and afflict us with your word, that you would bring it to bear on our lives. Father, that we would not leave here the same way that we came in, but that you would change us and change us deeply. Father, pray that you would help us as we are um, trying not to let all the other things, what we're going to do tomorrow, what we're going to do this afternoon, what we're going to do the rest of this week, to um, distract us, but Father, pray that you would help us to to listen intently, maybe above our natural abilities, and that you would use this time um, to to shape us and to mold us into your image. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. He left. He left. Um, last week we, or la- not last week, but two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is the point of the story of all the scriptures, is looking forward to the climactic story of Jesus Christ. How Jesus Christ came in human flesh, and He lived a perfectly human life, and He lived with perfect obedience, and He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then He died on the cross and was crucified for our sins. He bore our sins in His flesh. And then He rose again and to die no more. And we talked about how that is the point of the story, how everything else from Genesis 1 was leading up to that point. And Jesus is the point of the story. He's the main character. He is the star. He's the protagonist. Jesus is the point of the story. But what happens when the main character leaves? What happens when he leaves? When he left? When he ascended? When he, seated, when he was seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty? Does the story still continue? What I want to show you today as we're walking through the New Testament is that Jesus continues his story through us. That the the story of Scripture is is not over. It's still finishing. It's still still coming to completion through his church, through his people. And I want to show you um, that from, from three things. I want to show you that from the church at the beginning. And I want to show you that from the church at the end. And then I want to show you that from the church at the present. So at the beginning, at the end, at the present. Well, Jesus ascends and he goes up to the Father and he sends his disciples to Jerusalem, to the the city of Jerusalem. And um, they're all praying. And at the Feast of Pentecost, which is sometime after the Passover of the Jews, uh, the the church is all gathered together and they're praying. And um, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit 
um, down to them and they begin to speak in tongues. Now, there's a couple things that are important about this. I want to emphasize this, that when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, it's not just a, a bonus that he's giving them, kind of a going away present. Um, it's not just a, a walkie-talkie that now that they can communicate with each other like this. Jesus sends his spirit to them and that through his spirit, through the spirit that Jesus himself has, that they now have for themselves, that they are indwelled with his spirit the same way that he is, that they actually have his presence. So when Jesus says, uh, I am with you always to the end of the age, what is he talking about? He's talking about this communion that Christians have with their Lord, that they are now seated with him in the heavenly places, as Ephesians says, that they have, that they're united with him and they're, they're one in him and they're one with him and what they have is his and what he has is theirs. And the gift of the spirit is Jesus keeping his promise. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so Jesus gives this gift of the Holy Spirit to them and they begin to speak in tongues and there are so many people around and Peter preaches this uh, fire and brimstone sermon telling them, yeah, you're responsible for killing Jesus. And then he calls them to repentance and we see thousands upon thousands of people come to know the Lord in that time at Pentecost. And then they all, um, they get baptized and then they covenant together and they form a local church. They form a local church, and God is doing amazing things through this local church. He's adding to its number day by day. He's growing this local church. He's, he, he's working in the midst of this local church. He's, he's using their, their ministries in a variety of ways, and, and it begins to get a little unruly, and, and factions and cliques start to form. And so um, God, is working through the apostles and the leadership of that church, they, they appoint seven deacons who can oversee the distribution of the food, and, and the, these deacons are, are meant in part to unite the church because they come from the group that was feeling overlooked. And so these, these deacons provide this function and it, it, the church is blessed through this and the church begins to grow again and it begins to improve again and it begins to push forward the kingdom again until, until trouble strikes. You see, the, the church had this, one of these deacons was named Stephen, and Stephen was a man of God, and he got up to preach, and, and those who were around him were furious at this preaching, and so they gathered around him, and they stoned him to death, and from that day, and a, from that day a, a great persecution broke out, broke out against the church, and the ringleader of that persecution was a man named Saul of Tarsus. And so the church spread from Jerusalem. It just kind of radiated out, and the church uh, went off. And we see in particular one of the other deacons, a man named Philip, is, is going, and he spreads the gospel among the Samaritans. And then he's, uh, he goes into the desert, and he shares the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, this treasurer, this banker, who's, who's on his way back down to, to, to Ethiopia to be the, essentially today the financial manager of, of, the, of the queen of Ethiopia. And, and G- Jesus, working through uh, Philip, saves him and he comes to know the Lord and he is regenerate and, and uh, the, the, the church continues to spread through this. Uh, it's about this time that Peter is up on um, this roof and he is a little bit hungry and so he has this really weird dream about all these, uh, all these animals that are on this sheet and, and, and there's all these unclean animals and Peter's, Peter can't eat any of that and, and Jesus, he hears the voice of Jesus saying, take and eat and and Peter says, I can't, you know, I, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And Jesus says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. 
And so Peter takes up and eats it. And it's at that time that uh, a messenger from a man named Cornelius comes to him. And they, he goes with this messenger back to the city of Joppa. And it's Cornelius is a, a, is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And, and Peter shares the gospel with him. And these two are saved. And we see that even though the church had been persecuted, that it's still spreading the gospel. It's still pushing the kingdom out. It's still uh, evangelizing the lost. It's still seeing many people come to know the Lord. And there are churches that are popping up all over the place. And perhaps the most stunning thing that happens at this time is this Saul of Tarsus, who had been the ringleader of this persecution, is furious at this. And so he's going up to Damascus to, to drag Christians to jail and, and to kidnap them and to take them uh, by secrecy to Jerusalem to stand trial for converting to Christianity. And he's on the, his way to Damascus and suddenly Jesus kind of opens up the heavens and Saul gets this vision of Christ as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's says, who are you? He says, why are you persecuting me? And suddenly Saul begins to realize that this Christ who who he'd been persecuting actually did rise from the dead. He actually did ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And Saul himself is converted. And you can read his story in the book of Acts. You see that God is continuing to, to work through the church, even saving and even bringing the worst kind of rebel to himself, even saving those who are far and bringing those who are, who are, who it seemed like there was no hope for, bringing them into the fold. And God works in the life of Saul of Tarsus and calls him to be a, first a pastor in a local church and then a missionary. And Saul goes out with his friend Barnabas and they begin to evangelize and they they see the gospel spread amongst the gentiles that the promise that god had made to abraham all those years ago that through your you the all the nations of the earth will be blessed begins to come true and we see this amazing promise that is beginning to be fulfilled and saul and or paul and barnabas they come back to the church in antioch and they they're telling the good news about this and and then there's conflict that strikes because some people who called themselves Christians were, were trying to demand that these new Christian converts who are among the Gentiles would also become Jewish. They would also accept the Mosaic law. And it, it was this message of Jesus plus the law. And so Paul and Barnabas are trying to say, no, 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 Christ is enough, that Christ is the Savior, that if we have Christ, then we have enough, and there's this conflict. And so they, they, they all decide that they're going to call together this big synod, this big council from all over. It's probably, other than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension, it's probably the most important event in the New Testament, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And so the Christians from all over gather to come to this this council, and it's a resounding victory for the gospel, because they 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 say you can't put these regular you can't impose the law again upon these people. If they're saved by grace through faith, just like the rest of us, then they're they're saved. And it's a resounding victory. And Paul goes on, and he goes on to go on a first missionary trip where he kind of circles around the, the cities of Greece, and then he comes back, and then he goes on a third missionary trip, and he goes to Ephesus, which was one of the, the one of the main cities of the empire. It was probably the biggest biggest city in all of what is today Turkey and Greece, and it was uh, many hundreds of thousands of people. And he plants a church there that just takes off and it explodes. And meanwhile, there's there's news that reaches all these Greek-speaking churches, that the church in Jerusalem is beginning to undergo persecution again. And so Saul begins to write to these churches and work for these churches that they would take a collection. You can read about this in, in, first, in 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans, that 
that Paul believed that because salvation had come from the Jews, it was fitting that the Gentiles would give back to the Jewish church. And so Saul, uh, Paul begins to gather this collection and he brings it back from, from the cities of the, of the Greeks and from the churches that were spread amongst those places. He brings this collection back to help the, the church and, uh, during a time of famine and persecution in Jerusalem. And some of his enemies see that he's there in Jerusalem, and they take him and they arrest him, and uh, he's held in imprisonment for for three years until finally he appeals to Caesar. And by a whole strange series of misfortunes, he's he's brought through uh, through shipwrecks and through storms and trials and tribulations, and he comes to Rome, and eventually, after that, church tradition tells us that he goes on to Spain and he begins to preach the gospel. You see, what had happened is. That, that prophecy from Isaiah 66, which we read earlier, that Paul kind of took that as his life verse. He kind of, if you, if you plot out geographically where all those places are that Mike did such a good job pronouncing, and if you plot out where all those, those uh, places are on the map, you can see that Paul's that, taking that as his roadmap, and he's following it. He's trying to fulfill that. and He, he, goes, he takes it to the coastlands that are far away. He's, he's spreading the gospel, and we see... That the church at the beginning is working to push the kingdom forward. It's working to establish outposts and, uh, of the kingdom and embassies of the kingdom. And it's working to, to push the kingdom community out, out into uh, not just the old heartland of the, the Jewish people, to, but to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. We, we can see that, that through the, the church that God is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we can see that through the church, that God is welcoming people into the new covenant to walk in relationship with Him, that they can have their sins removed, that they can be cleansed of their sins, and they can walk with the Spirit and walk in obedience to His Word and live as children of light. And this is the church at the beginning as it's pushing the gospel forward and it's pushing the gospel out. And you say, well, what about that, that, that there's no end to that story. The story is still continuing. How does the story end? What does the church at the end look like? And you can see that in, in the book of Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment to the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. What you see in the church at the end is, uh, that there will be a, a, a tribulation and um, that there will be a time of great persecution. And uh, we don't know when that will be, but that's not now. And there will be this time of tribulation and persecution. And, and then when all seems lost, that Christ will return. 
And when Christ returns, he's not going to leave heaven. He's going to bring heaven with him down to earth. And heaven and earth will become one, and God will be with us as our God, and we'll be with him as his people. There'll be no more mourning, nor crying, nor weeping anymore. And the former things will pass away. And he'll establish a kingdom that will endure forever. That because he has died once to die no more, his kingdom will never pass away. And he will gather his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they will sing to him, holy to the lamb. And they will worship him forever and ever. And because he lives, they will live too. There will be no more mourning, nor weeping, nor crying. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will be with them as their God, and they will be with him as as his people. And we'll see here that they will live in the new covenant, which will never, ever be broken because it depends on the blood of Christ. And all the promises that God has made will will be yes and amen through Jesus Christ. And that there will be nobody who can look back on the Bible and say, but this didn't happen. Because God will show his faithfulness and he will show that he keeps his word through his son. And so we've seen that kingdom, seed, and covenant continue all the way from, the ver- from Gen- Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. That these themes that we've traced throughout all of Scripture, that they, they find their climax when Christ returns with his bride. The wedding of the Lamb. Maybe you say, well, that's, that's great for the church at the end, but what about the church at the present? What about the church at the present? If, if, I mean, obviously that's not us yet. I don't see heaven coming down. to. So what, what happens with the church at the present? Well, let's re- rewind a bit and go back towards the time of the end of the Roman Empire. As this, this is happening, we saw this picture in Acts of the church. It's just spreading and it's, it's colonizing and it's, it's, uh, it's produ- reproducing all over the place and it's growing like crazy. Eventually the church overtakes the Roman Empire. The church begins to, to, to shape the very cu- culture and character of the Roman Empire until even Constantine, the great emperor, is, himself bows the knee to Jesus. And over the period of the Middle Ages, that the church transforms society. It changes society. It, it, it reshapes society as the gospel continues to go out, as the kingdom continues to spread, as the people of God are continued to gather. And, and yet the church as it's transformed society, is itself being transformed by society. And the church begins to take on the characteristics of, of the medieval, uh, of the people who existed before the time of Christ. And the church itself begins to layer things onto the gospel, just like those Judaizers from long ago from the Jerusalem Council. And they begin to put other obligations, things that aren't written in Scripture, on, onto the gospel. And the, the gospel begins to be obscured and dim. And God in His kindness sees fit to bring about reformation. He sees fit in His time to raise up men and women of God who love the Scriptures and who love the gospel and who find freedom in Christ. Men like 
Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Philip Melanchthon and Thomas Cramner and John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and uh, men who, uh, who, who uh, many of whom we don't even know their names, that they grab hold of the gospel and it suddenly becomes clear and it breaks through the fog and, and they see it and they love it and they cherish it. And they begin to preach it. And you actually see during the time of the Reformation, one of the great amazing things is that a church planning boom explodes and the gospel goes out and it goes forward. And the, the, the churches that receive Reformation in Europe actually begin to send out missionaries. They begin to send, send people out to the four corners of the earth. And yet in time too, oftentimes that, that those same churches that had been reformed in, in the time of the Reformation, they began to lose sight of the gospel, which is why groups like the Puritans arose is to try to purify the, the, the church and to try to bring the gospel to bear on every aspect of life and to try to push the gospel out. And we see men, we see men like Richard Sibbs and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen who are, who are trying to clarify, no, this is the truth of the gospel. This is what it means that you and I can be justified by faith alone. Many of the Puritans came to the New World and they planted all these churches in the New World and New England, places like Massachusetts and, yes, also Maine. And yet over time, even these churches began sometimes to lose sight of the gospel. They too began to be dimmed. And so you see that God throughout the history of the American church has provided these times of reformation and these times of revival where where people saw clearly the truth of Scripture and they saw the power that it brings when you bring the gospel to bear on every part of their life. And see men work, God working through men like Jonathan Edward and George Whitfield and um, D.L. Moody and some of these other figures who are preaching the gospel and planting churches and seeing many who are far from God come near. About 84 years ago, there was an association of churches in this area. An association of congregational churches that went through a church planting boom. And they found this pastor who was already pastoring two churches, so what's two more? It's a true story. And so they tapped him to plant a church in November in Orrington and a church right here in December 1940. East Holden Community Church. And the church here has been preaching the gospel year in and year out, pushing, being an outpost for the kingdom, seeing people come to know the Lord and spreading his kingdom and gathering his people and offering full forgiveness and life in Christ. And you are part of that story. You and I are part of the story of Scripture as God is continuing to push His gospel forward. This story is not yet over. The church has not yet come down from heaven to earth, and until that story is over, we will be here preaching the gospel and spreading the kingdom and offering forgiveness and life in Christ to all who will come and take it. This is the story of Christ, and it's the story of me, and it's the story of you as we take part in this great work, this great movement, the greatest story that has ever been told as God continues to further his work. Yes, Jesus is the point of the story, 
But Jesus continues his work and he continues his story through you and me and through us. The story is continuing to happen through you and me. And through all the twists and turns and the plot twists and the, all the ups and the downs and the unexpected little, little character developments and, the, and all the foreshadowing and the narrative devices that are happening, we can be confident because the end has already been written. And even though the end has not yet happened, it, we already know the end of the story, that Jesus will win. Because he has already won. Christians, this is the story of Scripture, and this is the story of you and me as Christ continues his story. So if this is true, how, how can we apply this? How, how does this matter for us? Why does this matter for us? Let me give you seven applications, seven applications. Um, if this is all true, um, that it matters for you and for me. First application is this. If this is not your story, if you don't know Christ, if you're far from him, if you are not in his kingdom, if you've never found forgiveness of sins and life in him, this can be your story. This can be your story. We've seen throughout scripture as we've traveled through it the last six or seven weeks that God is inviting the unlikeliest, strangest, most imperfect, most unexpected people into the story. We've seen that God did that with Ruth and with David. We saw that God did that with Daniel and with Esther. We saw even today that God did that with the Ethiopian eunuch. And if God can invite those people into a story, God can invite you too. This can be your story. You can take part in this great drama that God has been working to bring about since the first pages of Scripture. This too can be your story. But if, if it would be your story, that also means, number two, that you must let Christ be the main character. Christ is the protagonist. This is his story, not our story. That he is the center stage. He is the most important character. He is the protagonist. And you say, I don't want to be in a story where Christ is the center, where I'm not the center of attention. Oh, dear friend, it would be better, it would be better to be in a story where you are merely an extra that goes on for all eternity than for you to be the main character in a story that is here today, gone tomorrow. It would be better for you to be found in his story and to find meaning and purpose in life, even if it means that you live and die in obscurity, than to be the center stage of your, your life that is not anywhere close to Broadway. It is better to be part of his story than to be part of yours. Yes, Christ may, must be Lord. Yes, Christ is the one who's seated on the throne. Yes, Christ is the one who's ascended. Yes, Christ is the king. Yes, Christ is the perfect lawgiver. Yes, Christ is the head of the church. Yes, Christ, is, it's, it's his story. And, and yet, it's still better to have that be your story than to be the star of your own story that is here today, gone tomorrow. And mercifully for you, number three, this is the story of a king who forgives rebels. It's the story of a king who forgives the rebel. If you look at the story of Saul, how Saul was vehemently, violently opposed to the gospel. How he was willing to 
kidnap people and drag them in chains across international boundaries to face a sham trial somewhere. And yet God met him on the road to, Dism- to Damascus. And he who once had been the Pharisee of Pharisees, the, the rising star in, this, in, this, in his own world, became Paul the Apostle, who preached the gospel to people who were far and people who were near, who took the gospel to the, to the farthest extent of the world that he could. Now, this is the story of a king who forgives the rebel. And so if you're worried that God would ever take you in because of what you've done in the past, because of the things that you've said or the ways that you've acted selfishly or the, the mistakes that you've made or the, the people that you've damaged or the people that you've hurt, you haven't read Scripture closely enough yet. Because this is the story of a king who delights to welcome in those who are far and to redeem those who the world considers unredeemable. This is the story of a king who forgives the rebel. If this would be your story, it also means number four, that you and I must live as those who are part of the kingdom. That we must live as those who are part of the kingdom. This is a good thing because it carries with it forgiveness. Colossians says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That we are redeemed and we receive forgiveness and we're transferred. We're no longer uh, citizens of 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 this world below from the of the domain of darkness we were transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son and yet this is also uh, this also puts a pressure on us that you and i would live in such a way that it would not bring reproach upon the name of christ paul says this in the book of ephesians for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. If, If this would be your story, you and I, if we would be members of his body and citizens of his kingdom, and if we would call Christ our head and Christ our Lord, that means that we must walk as children of light if we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, then that must mean that we must no longer live as children of darkness. We must live as those who've been regenerated and made new and forgiven. There must be a change that happens in our life. This is a king who will not accept mere lip service. That if we are to be members of His kingdom, it must change us and transform us. And that's for our good. That brings life, and that's a life worth living. It's it's full life. And yet it is a life that is costly. Maybe you're on the edge this morning, and you're wondering, can I I really go ahead? This is a a not cheap grace. This This is something that might require me to give my life. I would say absolutely it will. And yet what gain? What gain to have the riches of eternity, to have the king of glory, to have God as your God. Oh yes, there is cost to living the kingdom life. Yet what gain? What gain? This also means, number five, that, this, that Jesus pushes his kingdom forward 
through his church. That God does not ask the citizens of his kingdom to do life alone, but rather to gather as a people, to come together. The book of Ephesians says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There are no lone wolves in the kingdom of Christ. God does not push forward his church through uh, individual citizens, but rather through kingdom outposts. And if you would be a member of his church, it must mean it means that you would be a member of his church. It would mean that you would join with other Christians and live in community with other Christians so that you would no longer be a child. Rather, you would grow up into maturity. There are no lone wolves in the kingdom of Christ, but rather the kingdom pushes forward by gathering people who in the world probably wouldn't ever get along with one another. But in the kingdom, God brings those of us from different backgrounds and different families and different income levels and different education levels and different political preferences. And he brings us all together into one body so that we can grow together into the fullness into Christ. And this also means, number six, that even when it seems like he's not here, even when it seems he is not here, he is never far. In fact, Scripture says that He is with us even to the end of the age. I was telling the elders this morning, to which I got some snickers, that one of my favorite chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. And I love the story of The Horse and His Boy if you've never read it. It's a story of Shasta. There's this uh, orphan named Shasta who's adopted by this person who's going to be sold into slavery. And so he finds out that he has a talking horse, and he and this talking horse, they escape, and they're being chased by lions, and they're, they're, um, uh, there's one point where he's alone in this, in this graveyard kind of place, and he, he hears all these animals howling at him, and he, he, he makes his way through the desert, and he gets to, uh, to the area of Narnia, and he gets uh, close, and, and, and suddenly it seems like his horse is bolted, and he's all alone, and he's walking through the fog, and he, he feels this breath. And it says this. Alas, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then for an even more terrible idea had come into his mind, he said, almost in a scream, you're not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. 
What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers and about his night among the tombs and how the beast howled at him among the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased and wounded his friend and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've told you that there were at least two the first night and there was only one, but he was very swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion. You do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Christians, we might feel like Christ is far. We might feel like he is not here. But his promise is true. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And we can take him at his word when he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Which means this, number seven. If all these things are true, if this promise is true, this is a time for courage for Christians. Christ has promised he will build his church and the gates of Hell shall not overcome it. Christ has promised that he is with us for the, to the very end of the age. And so this is not a time for fear. This is not a time for cowardice. This is a time for courage. The Apostle Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Christians, this is a time to walk by faith, to strengthen your knees, to straighten your backs. This is a time to set your gaze heavenward, for His Word is true. I love the song that we're going to sing. O church, arise. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. 
for now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lives. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight in faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. So Spirit, come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day, when with Christ we stand in glory. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us a people of courage. People who are willing to push your kingdom farther out. Father, would you make us a people who who walk as children of light and not like we still live in the darkness. Father, would you give us courage and boldness. Father, would you help us to know that your son is with us and that he is never very far. Father, we pray now that you would bind our hearts with your love and that you would put songs of praise in our mouths as we set our gaze heavenward and look for the end. Pray for all this in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.